Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 22nd, 2018, and my guest is economist and author Arnold Kling. This is his 14th appearance on Econ Talk. He was a guest most recently in May of 2016, talking about his book, Specialization in Trade. Today, we're going to be talking about the economics of the 21st century, using a recent essay Arnold wrote on the topic at medium.com, which we will link to. Arnold, welcome back to Econ Talk. Looking forward to it, Russ. The premise of your essay is that the world has changed, economic reality has changed, the economy has changed, but the discipline of economics, the way that we as economists approach the world, uh, hasn't changed sufficiently, if, if at all. So I'd like us to start off with the, with the idea that your claim that the economy is different somehow from the economy that economists talked about in the past. What's different? Why is it important? Well, let me start by saying that you know, an economy is embedded in a culture, and culture changes. If you just you know, look at what's happened to music in the last 200 years or look what's happened to beliefs about sexual conduct, which are still being heavily contested as we speak, uh, you see that culture has evolved very rapidly. And my claim is that you know, the economy is embedded in a culture and the economy is embedded rapidly. So that's different for something like in the physical sciences – where the uh, the subject matter isn't changing as you speak. I mean, the physicist is, is investigating the same physical world that they were investigating you know, a couple hundred years ago. The economist is not. So my metaphor would be like, you know, think of of economists like us being detectives trying to chase a suspect. And if... Uh, if your approach to chasing the suspect is to sort of look at where the suspect, where you last saw the suspect and then move a couple feet closer, meanwhile the suspect is moving a mile and then you move a couple feet in the, more in the direction where you last saw the suspect and the suspect moves another mile, you keep that up after a while and the suspect is just nowhere near where you're looking. Well, you know, my job here as host of Econ Talk is to give my guests a hard time from time to time. Um, my other job is to help the listeners and myself understand what the guest is saying. Uh, so I'm going to be giving you a hard time mostly in this, in this, as well as I hope trying to clarify. So, but let me start with the argument against that point, which is, okay, uh, so the physical world, the underlying physical world presumably hasn't changed. The world of quarks, neutrinos, atoms, um, stars, etc. That's the physics world. Uh, the biology world hasn't changed so much. We're still comprised of cells and skin and bone. And you're arguing that the economic world has changed because the culture that it's embedded in has changed. But I would counter by arguing that human nature hasn't changed. The economist's vision of what motivates human behavior that goes back, let's say, 
You could say it goes back to Adam Smith, but you could say it more recently goes back to Alfred Marshall, uh, which was late late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, Marshall's a British economist, wrote the classic uh, principles of economics text of his day. And not that much has changed since then about human nature. And isn't that all that we really are trying to understand is what motivates people and how they interact? What's so important about culture? Why should it matter when I'm trying to understand, say, interest rates or the market for bread or um, tax policy? Okay, I'll say a couple of things about that. The um, first of all, there are some economic concepts that. So, I, put it this way: suppose you were to completely have amnesia about all the economics that was built up from Marshall, Smith, whatever, and you you had to start all over, and you looked out in the world, and which concepts. If you looked at the world today, if you had sort of you know the the same insight that those great economists had, uh, but you didn't you didn't know what they already knew, which which insights would come back? Which principles would uh, would you would show up again? And which principles would never occur to you because they're irrelevant? And that that's one way to think about this issue. And so I, I think we we can get into that later. Well, I like let that. Me give, let me give you a specific reason to not think that everything in economics you know come can be deduced from adam smith and and so on um look at the financial crisis which you know you know a lot of people looked at that and said gosh why didn't anyone see that coming and i look at that and said how could any economist possibly have seen that coming given the primitive view of finance that economists had all of these financial instruments are you know, you don't even learn about like when you and I were in graduate school and I, I bet it's even still true today we didn't learn what a repurchase agreement was and maybe we can put up a link to what a repurchase <laughs> agreement is I think we can. Uh, but it's but really for many years it's been the centerpiece of monetary policy we've been learning and teaching the wrong way that monetary policy was executed for many years. We've been saying an open market operation, the Federal Reserve, you know, creates money and buys bonds. That's actually not what they've done. They, they've the way they intervened, at least up until 2008, they've been doing lots of weird things since, uh, is that they intervene in this repurchase market. They intervene in the repo market. They make repo loans or they do reverse repo. So we didn't even understand the mechanics of the Federal Reserve operation, much less the exotic financial instruments that were going on. So that's an example of the cost of thinking that, well, everything's pretty much the same as it was 200 years ago. Well, I agree with that, and I would I'd push it, uh, I think, quite a bit further, which is that – I've spoken about this, although not so recently on, on EconTalk, but – I didn't learn anything about finance at all in graduate school. Um, I didn't take finance. And I remember when job candidates came through after when I was an assistant professor who had studied finance, I was mystified by them. I thought they were doing this weird, arcane, strange specialization that I, you know, that had something to do with the stock market or Wall Street. And I think the 
the bigger thing that we that we failed at as economists is that uh, we didn't understand macroeconomists struggled to integrate the role of debt and leverage into their models. And as a result, I think that's the, the biggest reason we were sandbagged by the financial crisis of 2008. I, I say that I'm not a technical, I'm not really a, a macroeconomist, but the macroeconomics I learned had nothing to do with finance. And I suspect that was generally true also until very recently, maybe still true, as you point out. I don't think, and, you know, go ahead. And it's even worse than that, in that even these finance guys who are walking through, they don't, they don't understand the purpose of finance of financial intermediaries you know they know how to relate different prices of different assets and say well you know if the underlying stock is this the option value should be that or this portfolio ought to perform this way but they don't really understand a, what is the purpose of financial intermediation what do financial intermediaries accomplish i think that's one of the big unknowns in economics is exactly what they do. Explain what you mean by financial intermediation and what you mean by financial intermediaries. Okay, so financial intermediaries, you can think of it as any institution that issues debt. So, you know, Amazon issues debt, it's a financial intermediary. The more standard financial intermediaries, of course, are banks and investment banks um, and you know we so you know Wall Street firms things like that, but uh, there's an awful lot of financial intermediation that goes on, and economists don't understand it. When it, it, economists tend to think in terms of the material world, and if you just think you know, so, there are resources, and then there's the the output that you get by put by assembling these resources and using these resources. That's the materialistic way of looking at things. And when you look at things that way, what economists tend to derive are what I call irrelevance theorems. In fact, they're known as irrelevance theorems, which basically say that finance is irrelevant because finance is not material. There's no material uh, production going on in the financial industry. It's all intangible. But just because it is intangible doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that economists have a hard time understanding it and a hard time articulating what it does. But it's really important if we're going to understand what's going on in the economy to be able to articulate that and to understand it. Yeah, I just want to make an aside here because I think it's important and it may or may not come up as we go through our conversation. But when I read uh, – let me say it this way. I think you're a heterodox economist in some dimension, Arnold, and I think I am as well, meaning slightly if not very much outside the mainstream of what's considered the normal ways that successful economists think about their profession and about the world. And when I read – uh, complaints about economics, they usually uh, drive me crazy. So even though I'm a heterodox economist, I usually don't like most critiques of economics. And one of those critiques, which which drives me crazy sometimes, which you've made a version of here, is that economics is unrealistic. Uh, you know, we didn't per, we didn't accurately convey, say, what monetary policy was really doing, or we we abstract from the importance of the financial sector, and of course. By definition, every field is unreal. Almost every field is unrealistic. Yeah. We have to abstract from 
lots of things. Otherwise, we make no progress. So in some dimension, I think those kind of complaints are cheap shots. So I think the burden is on the complainer to explain why that particular complaint is relevant, not that it's accurate. It is accurate. Economics is not realistic. We, we, we ignore lots of things, but that by itself is uninteresting. So your claim here, which I think is interesting, is that the financial sector's role in the economy is um, – the way I would describe it is it's, it's sort of a black box role. It has something to do with, with, uh, with growth and, and successful economic performance for an economy. You need to have the ability to borrow and lend money and, and to invest, and that's uh, – otherwise you can't grow. And, um, but we don't have much beyond that to say in, until I say recently. Would that be an accurate way to – frame your complaint? Uh, up until the point where you said until recently, because that makes it sound like we actually have made a lot of progress, and I don't believe we have. I think trying that, to be generous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think that, again, I think the role is intangible. It's in how it affects people's perceptions about risk and time. Um, so, what people want is to issue risky liabilities, like I'd like to borrow money and there's some risk that I won't pay it back, and that could be me as an individual or me as, as a, uh, an entrepreneur, as a firm. Uh, risky li- long-term liabilities, that is I want to I have a long time to pay it back. If I'm, a, let's say, a real estate developer, I don't want you coming back in two months telling me to pay, pay back money. It might take years for me to develop this property. Um, and yet what we'd like to hold as assets are riskless short-term assets. We want something that we can spend like, like a checking account. So what the financial intermediary does is it in it holds the opposite portfolio so you know the bank that holds uh loans made to real estate developers and somehow issues you checking accounts where you can spend the money tomorrow and it's riskless to you that's clearly some kind of magic going on in terms of changing the perception of of the underlying risk. If the underlying risk is a real estate project that's going to take five years and that may or may not pay off, and yet uh, you're experiencing that as a checking account where you can spend it risklessly tomorrow, that that's a major achievement. We need to understand more about it, and I think it raises all sorts of questions that can come to your mind about how that works, or is that a Ponzi scheme, or you know what what are they accomplishing? And those questions are questions that we ought to be asking and doing research about. Do you think in a undergraduate macroeconomics class or microeconomics class that yeah, can we forget macroeconomics? I'm I'm, I'm ready to dismiss, dismiss those. You know, going back to the question of which concepts would you rediscover and which <laughs> concepts would you never, uh, never think of because they, they they don't work at all. I I would put most of macroeconomics in the you know you would never come back to those. So let's just talk about micro. Well, no, I, I'm not going to let you get away with that. Um, it's a lovely thought. Uh, I'm sympathetic to it, but you're arguing then that say. Stabilization policy, worries about business cycles. We shouldn't think about those things and the role that, say, the financial sector plays in that? Okay, so 
first of all, the term business cycle, I don't think that would come back because a business cycle sounds like things moving up and down, back and forth. Now, in you know, in an agricultural economy, you can sort of see that. You get good harvests and bad harvests, good weather, bad weather. There's, a, there's reason to believe it's cyclical. There's no reason at all to believe the economy now is cyclical. It's evolving so quickly that, uh, that what you have are industries that are expanding while other industries contract. And somehow the net effect of that uh, is something you look at for overall economic performance, but I wouldn't call it a business cycle. So I'm being, I, I am going to be super heterodox here. I'm going to be militantly anti-orthodox. That's fun. I like that. But let's go back to your – so back to my question, forgetting the nomenclature. Do you think undergraduates uh, or graduates, students – should learn about uh, financial intermediation as part of their basic e- economic instruction. Do you think it's a central piece of the economy? For example, we would often teach, say, about how the labor market worked, the role of unemployment, search theory, information theory. Uh, we might teach uh, folks about the, the uh, desire to save. We teach them about risk preference, perhaps. Do you think the role of financial interme- intermediation is a central piece to uh, part should be a central part of economic education? If I had to guess, you know, sort of what created the uh, steep recession that we ex- experienced, my guess is that something to do with financial intermediation probably played a role. I don't think we have a great understanding of it. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that I would throw out, like the whole notions of aggregate supply and aggregate demand. I think they, I think they obscure more than they help. Um, but the issue of, of exactly what transpired that, you know, a lot of people intuitively thought there would be a recession after the financial crisis. There's actually some you – know, your most basic macroeconomic theory would have said it's unnecessary, that the government could have been able to stabilize the economy uh, and that the, the things that the government did were the things that should have stabilized the economy. And, of course, the, what economists say in apologizing for the fact that it didn't is, well, they just didn't do enough. You know, They didn't realize how bad it was. But I, I'm not sure that those tools did anything. I uh, and I don't think we really deeply understand what it was that created a recession following that financial crisis. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to play Keynesian, which um, not easy for me, but I think I can manage it. Uh, I want to make actually a point before I do that, which is I think you could argue that as a different way of agreeing with your point, a different angle on it. I'd say, which is. If I remember correctly, the recession started um, in December. Yeah, December two thousand and seven. <laughs> I think fourth quarter two thousand and seven yeah. is the yeah. official dating of it. We certainly didn't know we were in a recession at the time. Uh, literally, we didn't know. Some people yeah. may have suspected things weren't were trouble. There were some troubling signs, but I think it's one way to think about the problem macroeconomic policy, if I may use the term, is um, or stabilization policy, is that we're a little bit like the general on the battlefield getting the report too late that this particular flank is under attack. So we send um, some sort of reinforcement, and by the time it gets there, that flank is doing fine, or it's already lost, in which case it's a waste. It's just uh, totally not just ineffective, but counterproductive. So 
I think there's an information problem. Uh, you're arguing more than that, of course. You're arguing it's a conceptual issue of how to think about it. So let me play the Keynesian role now, which is I don't really need to know the cause. You know, you're you're talking about all this again. You're you're worrying about what the precise causal relationship is between these financial intermediaries and economic an economic downturn. I don't need to know that. All I know, all I need to know is when things are going bad badly, I just have to uh, spend more money from the government, or I have to change interest rates through financial through monetary policy. The cause of it's not important. Uh, it might be important for trying to avoid it in the future, but for fixing it once it's underway, I just need to intervene in these uh, time well tested methods for avoiding uh, this thing persisting. Yeah, I, I don't really want to spend time arguing that. I think I just refer people to the specialization and trade book for sort of my alternative thinking on on macro. I, I, I'm more, I'm actually or the econ go, talk episode. I want, yeah, I, w- I want to go after tougher challenges. I want to go after micro and you know productivity and the marginal productivity theory and all that stuff. Okay, then let me ask you a different question. I want to try to give a different version of your cultural argument because I, I don't think the example you gave was, which I've now forgotten, but it didn't seem to me to be a cultural issue. Um, Let's suppose, as many people are concerned about today, let's suppose that uh, we're worried about uh, the uh, well-being of people in depressed parts of the United States, places that are not doing well economically, rural areas in, say, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio. And the we're trying to think about how to help those areas or, more importantly, help the people that are there. And one of the things that we talk about a lot in this program is, well, why aren't they moving? If, if economic opportunity is so sparse there, is so mediocre, why don't they move? And, and then the standard answer, the economist's answer would normally be something like, uh, well, if they move to the larger cities, interest uh, rents are very high there. And so it's not as appealing as it used to be. And the way to fix this problem is to improve housing policy. And, of course, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, I'm a big opponent of, of overzoning and, and some of the things we've done to make housing expensive. Uh, in major cities, but a different answer, which would be, well, you don't understand. Uh, there's cultural reasons they don't want to move. They like where they live. They were raised there. They have emotional ties there. And if you're just looking at the financial aspects of the, tr- of the decision, you're missing out what's really going on. And similarly, if you think the only problem is, is that they have low skills, you're missing out on the fact that they have despair. And so a lot of people, I think, are arguing that economics is missing these cultural elements, the role of, of literally of culture, what we would call culture and family and decisions of where to live, uh, the role of uh, meaning in life, uh, which a lot of people are starting to write about and wondering whether we've got some issues about that. Those are what I think of when I think of the cultural aspects of economics that we might be missing. Does that hit the mark for you? I'm going to say No. I'm going to say that I want something broader that the cultural changes include, and, there, and these are include economic changes, for example, changes in our tools of communication. So historically, you know, the printing press had a big impact. Mass media had a big impact. We're doing a podcast. Paul Samuelson never did a podcast. Mises never did a podcast. Marx never did a podcast. So... You know, we're, we are living in a different world, and some of it's technology, uh, some of it's habits. Um, 
a lot more of what we deal with is intangible. And that's a point I really want to emphasize. You know, we've talked to, we already talked about how finance is intangible, but, you know, Google Maps is intangible in a way that a physical map is not. And that, you know, there are some important differences that we can talk about, and I'm sure they've been talked about on, on this show before. Um, the, are, you talking, are you talking about the, the excludability issue? Because I think that's what – let's talk about that because I think that's important. Because yeah. my first yeah. thought is, why do I care? So Marx was never on a podcast. So he wrote a book called, called Das Kapital. So, and yeah. Why is that important? It, why is it important that, say, in the old days I wanted to have some fun. I'd, I'd go buy an ice cream cone and walk go to the amusement park. But I'd also look out into the distance at the beach um, when I was on the boardwalk of a, of a seaboard, you know, a coastal city. Yeah. So now I look at my phone. It's not tangible. Neither was looking at the ocean. Why, why is that important? Because, well, first of all, the ocean is, you know, no one needs to be paid for there to be the, the ocean. But somebody somewhere along the line needs to be paid if there's going to be Google Maps, if there's going to be... Uh, Spotify music, and so on. Uh, so with these intangible goods, you, you, is, you said the magic word excludability. So with a, with a physical good, the default setting is, is if, if you've produced the good, you can exclude someone from getting hold of it if, unless they pay you. On the Internet, the default setting is they can get it without you're knowing it or being able to stop them. So it's the complete opposite, not excludable. And the other th issue is rivalry, the technical term. So the, uh, with a hamburger, it's rivalrous. If I eat the hamburger, you can't eat the hamburger. But with this podcast, it's not rivalrous. Uh, if, if, the, if one person's listening to it, it doesn't interfere in any way with anyone else listening to it. And when things are not rivalrous and not excludable, the traditional economic story is, ah, that's a public good. There's no way it can be provided by the private sector. But they're being provided by the private sector all over the place. Yeah. And you know, sometimes they're being financed by advertising, sometimes by patronage. Sometimes they are putting up paywalls to try to exclude people. Uh, there's also th there's a whole menu of uh, options that are came out in uh, Carl Shapiro and Hal Varian's book Information Rules, you know, bundling, versioning. Th th there's a whole menu of things, and these are just these are very important. And uh, it's not in the traditional mainstream economics. There are economists like Varian and Shapiro and, and others who've looked at them, and I think that's it's an exciting uh, area of research. So the question is for, for me. Let's bring this down to some uh, to a policy issue. So what what Google and Facebook, Apple and Amazon to some extent, but let's let's stick with let's stick with Google, Facebook, and, and Apple and Twitter, for example. What they're doing is they're adding folks. More and more people searching on Google. More and more people on Facebook. More and more people on Twitter. At least for now. They're adding all kinds of folks. They're building this, what's effectively an, an online community of people's ability to interact with each other, share information. And as you point out, excludability is um, different in that marketplace than it is in, say, the market for apples. How does that change um, how we think about antitrust policy? So 
a lot of uh, people that you and I are friends with who like competition and think competition's powerful, free market or types, we tend to argue, well, things will sort themselves out. Sure, Google's on top now, but in 10 years, five years, three years, there'll be something else. Uh, people are worried about Microsoft now. Uh, they were wrong. They were worried about IBM. They were wrong. Is Google different simply because it is this non-excludable, intangible thing? Or is it different for another reason? Or is it not different at all? Well, I think it's different. And I think, as Tyler Callen would point out, your traditional problem with monopoly is that they have an incentive to restrict their consumer base, their user base. By holding that back, they can raise prices. With Google and Facebook, as a first approximation, they have the opposite incentive, which is to have as many people as possible so that they can grab your data. So we... So right away you don't you don't want to just fall back on traditional antitrust. That isn't to say that there isn't some kind of abuse going on, and the concern is actually the, an abuse on the other hand. That you know, there's the 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 uh, cliche that you know you're not the customer, you're the product. Yeah. And may, and if that's the case, then then you have to rethink it from that perspective. But it, and and I, it's a great issue to think about from an economic point of view and to do research on. But again, you don't want to fall. I think if you fall, try to fall back on the way you thought about traditional industrial firms, I think you, you get the wrong answer. I think that's a great point. And I, I think uh, I've made the mistake in the past of, of arguing that, well, Google's great because it's free, right? I don't have to pay yeah. to search. Look how fantastic it is. They provide this great service. Of course, what I'm paying for indirectly is through the price of the products that I that are tangible that I do buy that are advertised on Google. Uh, if Google's taking an increasingly large share of the profitability of those industries because it has a chokehold on advertising, uh, I'm going to pay in higher in the form of higher prices of those uh, products. Or there could be monopoly, non-competitive aspects of that as well. Maybe, I, but I don't think we know. I, I, um, I agree with that. You know, <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's inter it, it'd be interesting just to work out, you know, what is their source of value? You know, for example, with the news industry, uh, the complaint is that, uh, let, let's say, if, you, if you're just going to Google News and Google News and Google is siphoning off the advertising, does that mean that the production of news, that the people doing reporting is going to suffer or be higher cost? I mean, those are great issues to explore. I don't have the answers to those. But those, the, the economic effects of Google and Facebook on other industries, because they're doing the, relying on advertising, and maybe they're just making things wonderful, wonderfully efficient. By uh, by the way they advertise, and then it's great. Or maybe they're undermining other industries in a way that's bad, and that that's a high priority issue to explore. Yeah, it's not obvious how you explore it. I, but I do, I, I do take your point that our standard methods for thinking about that may not be um, so useful. And, and I think you know, I I, I listed in the essay. 
uh, four key research areas, and one of them is what I call firm interaction. And this question of how the uh, ecosystem operates now in these various fir- in these various industries is a really important question. As is the you know the tr- what the traditional boundaries of the firm question: what should be done inside the firm and outside the firm? I mean, I'm shocked at the breadth of Amazon. I mean, it's it's incredible the breadth of that firm. It's it, I, I don't think any theory of the firm that economists develop. Economists haven't haven't done much with their theories of the firm because then it, again it becomes an intangible issue of you know what should you do inside the firm and outside the firm. It's it's all depends on intangible things, and economists don't do well with intangible things. But I don't think anybody from Coase or Williamson or anyone who's looked at that would have told you that something with the breadth of Amazon would have emerged. Yeah, I, I like to point out, we, we came up in a recent a recent episode with Matthew Stoller on this issue. Um, it's not obvious that Amazon is that uh, successful. Most of its profits come from its cloud uh, right. services. Uh, when you say it's hard, you wouldn't have predicted it, maybe it won't last. Maybe it's going to struggle, but it doesn't seem to be. It does seem to be a pretty successful going concern um and the breadth of it is extraordinary rather yeah. incredible and again i just it, you know the opportunities to research it are there you just have to open yourself up to looking at, at things from the standpoint of intangibles and it's just you know using i mean using the standard economic approach of well they're allocating labor and capital i mean come on Well, the standard approach is you combine stuff, workers, raw materials, machines, and you produce stuff then. So you have inputs and outputs. And then what we teach, or a lot of what we teach, is the firm's decision is how much to make. And that's always bothered me. It's a rather strange, um, incredibly narrow, uh, unrealistic description of what firms are struggling with. I mean, firms are trying to figure out to me, the biggest flaw in these types of methodological problems are is that the firm's trying to figure out what market's in, who are its yeah. competitors. That that's really tricky, um, and they're trying to they are going to decide based on what they produce as to who their they choose who their competitors are. It's really what your biggest choice is as a as a firm by deciding what the nature of your product is and its components and its price. Your figure, that's your choice. Well, that's that's all very important, managing the external environment, and it's also very important managing the internal environment. I mean, if somebody could figure out how to make good use, you know, you'll go back to your, you know, people in you know depressed areas, West Virginia, rural Ohio, and whatever. If you know. If entrepreneurs could make figure out how to make good use of those people, that problem would obviously be a lot less. And so the question is, why can't they do that? Um, the whole challenge of managing human beings in today's environment is a big, big issue. Um, just as a random example, you know, recent, recently Google fired an engineer, James Damore, for writing a memo about 
policies related to or issues related to women engineers and you know whether Google had it, you know what whether I, actually I, I don't want to get into big details about it but there's something where that had nothing to do with Demore's productivity his marginal product his wage rate I mean that's you know just the fact that management is dealing with that kind of an issue of you know the sensitivity of um, descriptions of whether of what or trying to explain why there are not more female engineers at, at the company uh, tells you how complex and once again intangible things have become for management. Um, but studies are showing that differences in management skills and approaches are a huge factor in differences across firms, across locations, across countries. So let me put that – let me pick a particular example that I think that's true. Um, So Steve Jobs passes away, and he's replaced by Tim Cook as CEO of Apple. Is that important or not? And I think most economists understand that it is important that that Steve Jobs provided something – unique in both his insights and his ability to create a particular kind of culture at Apple. And that's not a cookbook. It's not a recipe. You can't, Tim Cook can't, bad, bad pun there, yeah. but didn't mean that, yeah. sorry. But Tim Cook can't, as, as the chief cook, he can't uh, step in there and, and replicate that because it's not written down. Um, and if you said, I'm going to create a model of why Apple was successful under Steve Jobs, You'd struggle because, first of all, they weren't always successful. They had a lot of failure under Steve yeah. Jobs. And I think people then trying to figure out why it was successful. I probably mentioned this before, but I always find it interesting. You know, Steve Jobs was obsessed with the inside of the computer, not just the outside. He wanted the inside to be aesthetically pleasing. And some people decide, well, that's that's a good thing then because <laughs> because they're successful. Well, it could be that just a weird neurotic aspect of Steve Jobs' personality that would best be avoided. And a successful CEO in in his uh, aftermath should ignore that uh, and save money and not make the inside look as good as the outside. On the other hand, maybe it had a cultural impact on excellence that you or I have no understanding of. So I think corporate culture and motivation, uh, to come back to the Demore example, uh, I think companies care a lot about how people feel about it, where they work. Because people do care about that, and companies, therefore, are going to pay attention to that. And as economists, we don't have any. I don't think we have much of any. We have nothing to say about that, as far as I'm concerned. Well, it, and I'm not it, sure we ever will. By the way, so I'm not. I'm not sure you're right that we should be thinking about it. Maybe we shouldn't. Well, but it is true that getting teamwork and getting alignment is very important. And economists do step in on the subject of incentives. You know, how do you build an incentive, the right incentive structure within a corporation, uh, so that there's alignment? So I, I don't think it's a, an avoidable subject. Well, I think let's take that as an example. I think the um, if we think about Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times or Adam Smith's Pin Factory. Uh, an assembly line is essentially the 
one model of, of economic production that economists have looked at in various ways. It comes back to my example, which I got from you. We take people and machines and raw materials and we combine them and then we get an output. And I think anybody who's ever worked on a group project, even in school, understands that that process is very hard to describe uh, how group activities get done. At one extreme, one person does all the work and the other people free ride. At the other extreme, there's this incredible synergy. And as economists, I don't think we've figured out much that's useful about understanding that, but we do understand that it matters. And if nothing else, it means that the neoclassical theory of income distribution that says, oh, you can you can figure out what a person's wage is going to be because it's going to be their marginal product. Or the other way around, you can figure out what a person's marginal product is because it's bound to be close to their wage. When you're in some situation where you have a potential for this huge synergy of the team, uh, you can't rely on that. When you're in a situation where business strategy is really important and the same skills as an engineer can be uh, used much better at Google than at another company, you can't rely on this marginal productivity theory. So that's just, that's another example uh, where I think we, we do need to be willing to try for new economic thinking. And marginal product means the addition to the product when you add a little more of, say, my time, additional my worker. So you can think it, 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 you can think of it really well in terms of you know if you had a big field of berries and you had berry pickers and you said all right you add another another berry picker how many you know, how many berries do they pick and you can say generically the typical berry picker would pick this much and well here's somebody who's really good at it and they pick more. Uh, when you're or the sort field of, gets crowded after a while, an extra person but, but, doesn't add as much. We understand that too. Yeah, but uh, you know, when you're talking about uh, you know something like you know creating the iPhone 10 and coming up with a strategy for it and a price for it and the features for it, and then building those and you and you know everything that goes with that and the supply chain for that. I just don't think the marginal productivity story tells you much. Well, I agree with that, and I think a great manager it's, – it's impossible, I would argue, to measure with any precision in a product like that who made the biggest or most important or how much they contributed. All right, that That's the – that's your point uh, to some extent, and I think – a good manager understands, however, even though they can't measure it, they have an idea of who works well in teams, who adds um, the creative, to the creative process. And of course, a lot of what – for those of you listening in, in large corporations who tend to work in these teams, uh, you know that there's a lot of um, political maneuvering about who gets credit and how they get credit, and, and, and there's a lot of inaccuracy. Somebody who – is just really good at schmoozing. The boss might get more credit than they deserve. The quiet, more introverted person might get left behind and ignored who doesn't play the office politics game. These are all interesting things that I think I think of as being uh, the subject of a, of a thoughtful, provocative uh, business article in a good business publication. Again, I'd argue that outside of some very broad 
art, arguments by people like, say, Alchin and Demsitz on team production. Well, Conibus knows something about this. They recognize this challenge. It's not clear that we have anything to contribute other than a few descriptive, stylized images. I don't know. Do you think we well, can make some progress here? I think we can, and yeah, I, I do. I, I I certainly hope so, because otherwise, you know, then what you'd be saying is, well, sorry, we have to just stick with our, you know, what we got from Karl Marx about capital and labor, and then what was updated about that with neoclassical marginal productivity theory. And we have to use these 100-year-old, 200-year-old concepts in a 20, 21st century world, and we don't have a choice. I I, I do believe we have a choice. It, it may be difficult, and intangible stuff may be harder to deal with and rapid evolution is going to be hard to deal with and business strategy is complex, but let's at least try. Well, I'll come back to the episode we did recently with Bill James where he argued that very similar to your point and my point, or at least the issue was the same. We were arguing or discussing whether why some baseball managers are more successful than others. And Bill James argued in that conversation that that there are differences in the abilities of managers to motivate players, the so-called culture of the clubhouse, mm-hmm. and that he believes we can make progress on understanding it and, and get better at that. In my view, until I see the data, is that these things are, you know, we, we tend to look where the, where the light is. We're under the lamppost looking for the lost keys. And so we tend as economists to look at things that can be measured, those tangible things. Now, there's things that can be measured about intangible things. You can you can survey people about, about how hard they try, or you can survey people, say, about their job satisfaction. You can survey people about how well a team works ex post. But it's not obvious to me that we're going to make analytical progress. I think we can make some progress in recognizing these things. But I'm going to take the opposite approach. I'm going to argue we shouldn't be doing these things in that I think the main reason we do them, the main reason that we try to model them and think about them using the analytical toolkit of economics is often so we can make policy judgments. And I'd argue that in a world where things are are largely intangible, those policy judgments are going to be way off the mark because we can't measure those things very precisely. And we're going to misstate what makes people's lives more, more, excuse me, what makes people better off. And I think, you know, for example, I think to a large extent, we have used financial measures, income, as our measure of well-being. And that's not a bad place to start, but it's a very bad place to finish. And I think our inevitable focusing on tangible things is going to make the most important things in life, which are intangible, uh, outside of our purview. And I think they probably have to stay that way. Uh, what What I'm nervous about, if we stick to tangibles, is that you know, 200 years ago, if you knew how many bushels of wheat were being produced and you know, how many railroad cars or how many miles of railroad track were uh, being laid, you knew a lot. Uh, you know, the, now, you know, we don't know what the value is to people of Google Maps. We really don't know anything. And you can say, well, we'll never know, but I don't want to give up quite that much. I think I, it, it would take some creative effort to try to figure out what the value is of Google Maps. Uh, but I think it's worth some effort. 
uh, and we certainly have uh, at, these companies are collecting all sorts of data that that people can creatively use to try to answer some of these questions. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we ought to I think we ought to be looking there. What do you think about uh, the typical economist focus on rash- so-called rationality and the behavioral economics critique? That says people aren't rational, and this is related to what you said earlier. They make their decisions aren't just based on self-interest. Say they can be embedded in cultural issues uh, and other uh, motivations. Do you think that's an important area that that economists should be more open-minded about? I my my initial view is that uh, if you gave me an underrated, overrated, I'd say behavioral economics is a bit overrated. Um, you know, until yeah, I I. I I think the most important thing, the most important challenge we face isn't so we need to drop the rationality assumption. I think that we have to drop the tangibility assumption that, that, that things are tangible and we have to drop the, the notion that capital is all physical. There's a lot of intangible capital as well as intangible output. Uh, we haven't discussed the, 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 intangible capital, although we've kind of alluded to it. Um, I think that the, I, I, just, I think there are more important problems with mainstream economics than the rationality assumption. I guess that's the way I'd put it. When you say that we need to say we need to look at intangible capital or the nature of of modern economic activity by by firms being less tangible, talking about say Google Maps. What is, what's in your toolkit? What does economics – what do you think of when you think economics should look more at this? What comes to your mind when, when you say that? You say, for example, in your essay, these are areas that, that economists should do research on. Are, are you bringing the – you don't want to bring the, some of the traditional toolkit because you think it's outdated. What do we have to offer? Okay, so that, that brings up this question of sort of which concepts do I think would come back – yeah. If we were to start over, and which would not, I, um, you know, I, that book is specialization and trade. I think the concept of specialization would come back big time. I mean, you know, the economy is way more specialized. You know, Marx described these, you know, interchangeable workers, the working class. We still talk about the working class. If you, if you took somebody here from Mars and, and to observe our economy, they would, co- they would not come up with a concept of working class at all. They'd see this great variety of skill sets, locations, uh, temperaments, all sorts of things in, in people who are uh, employed. And they, they would, I think they would start looking at things uh, in those terms, how do these temperaments and how do their locations and how does their skill sets and their training and their ability and all, all these how, how do all these things come together to determine uh, you know their income and the quality of life and their standard of living? Um, you know that's I think that that's that's where people would go. So specialization would be uh, would be an even more important issue. Substitutability would be a more, more important issue. Um, so, th- you know, so those are 
the things would come by. I, the, supp- the law of supply and demand still holds. Uh, you know, I think it's still still very useful, maybe even more useful. The issue of price discrimination, uh, which was typically talked about in, in the context of monopoly, is way more important in the economy than people give it credit for. And it's certainly not just monopolies that use price discrimination. Just about everyone has to use price discrimination as a competitive strategy. And there, it, it, you know, if you do a um, sort of a natural economics question, you know, why does this happen? Why do movie theaters price this way? Why does popcorn cost so much? Why do cable bundles work? The answer to most of these questions boils down to price discrimination. So there's another concept that's, that we would be using more uh, if we were – you know, if we were trying to look at 21st century economics. Well, I'm going to push you back, push back a little bit on supply and demand in that it's my favorite insight in economics probably that you could draw on a blackboard. It's, it's for me, a crude version of emergent order. It's a way of capturing the complexity of interactions that, that are at the heart of economic life. And yet you've also argued that intangibility is growing increasingly important and it, does supply and demand have anything to tell us about these intangible things where output is 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 non-rivalrous and and where price is often zero? Well, that's a fair pushback, uh, but I think um, there still is – people still need to get paid. And their things need to get priced. They're not maybe not the pr- the prices are showing up in different places. So, um, you know, in the case of Google and Facebook, the prices are showing up in advertising, or as you suggested, the prices may be showing up indirectly in the prices of other goods and services. So there, there are still prices going on. Uh, it's just they're not maybe in the places where you expect them. And there's a lot more strategy involved in getting these in, in getting people in getting money to the people who are producing these public goods that we call information. So get it, you know somebody is producing these maps that you know, somebody's doing this mapping technology and the software to present. Google Maps to you, and so there's still some people who need to be paid. Um, but, gonna, the, but you're right that the, the, that the supply and demand story for Google Maps is not as a product is not is not as easy to tell as some as a, as a supply and demand story somewhere along the line for the process of getting it done. Well, I'm going to leapfrog over you and get what even maybe more extreme, which is. Your basic point that someone needs to get paid is is mostly true, but it's also true that a lot of things that are part of the modern economy are no one's getting paid at all, or they're getting paid in strange and and very different ways. I don't know how many hours are spent on YouTube a day. It's a really large okay. number. I saw it recently. It's frighteningly large. A lot of what people are watching is just put up there by people for fun. Uh, they're not making. Some people are making a living on YouTube. Some are using it to drive traffic to other places. Some are using it to establish a reputation. A lot of it is produced during leisure time. And I, I, I want to try to make your point a different way. And then you, 
you can respond. I, your critique about tangibility, I, I would think of it this way. The manufacturing sector as a source of employment is really small in America right now, and certainly small in historic, historical terms. It's It's been falling steadily as a proportion of total employment now in recent years, absolutely falling. And yet it gets a lot of attention. And I think it gets a lot of attention partly because of the nature of electoral politics and the geographical concentration of some of those people perhaps is part of that story. The intangible economy you're talking about, the non-manufacturing part, the Google Maps, YouTube, uh, Spotify part. Well, Spotify is a little different, but YouTube, let's call it YouTube and Google Maps. Those are parts of the, quote, economy. They're parts of our lives that don't have so many people uh, employed producing them. And people bemoan that. I, of course, see that as mainly a feature, not a bug. It's a great thing that we can get these glorious things without a huge uh, portion of human time and effort devoted to them. Um, you know that that Google doesn't have a lot of employees seems to me to be a wonderful thing. Or Amazon, and I don't know. What do you think? Well, that gets to one of my other major research agenda items, which is how do you measure economic performance? Yeah, uh, because. It, it could very well be that not just the amount of leisure is going up, but what I, I might call the intensity of leisure is going up. So you know, I, I like to say that you now nowadays there's very few social bridge players. You know, the bridge is a card game. There are mostly tournament bridge players. What that one possibility is that a lot of those people who used to play social bridge didn't like it that much, but they settled for it because there wasn't anything else for them to do. So now you've got the, the tournament bridge players who love playing bridge, and the social bridge players have found something else that they really enjoy. And I think sort of YouTube and what uh, Tyler Cowen calls matching technology of the internet has kind of enabled that. So in some sense leisure intensity has gone up and people are having more fun with their leisure time and you know how do you how do you include that in economic performance and so one argument would be and i know you're somewhat sympathetic to this which is who cares so it's really hard to measure the sum of this stuff we shouldn't be measuring it anyway we our attempts to measure it Aggregate across all kinds of things. You, you complained earlier just in passing about, quote, aggregate supply. I know you, you've complained on this program and written in, in negative ways about G, the GDP factory as if somehow the outputs of our economy are produced in a 19th century way and by combining capital, labor, and raw materials. And I think, I think that point's really well taken. Uh, most people would say, and this is one of your themes, well, we just need to measure it better. And other people would say – it's kind of a fool's game, uh, and it's particularly a fool's game when we're trying to measure uh, using output as a surrogate for well-being. Is why I would, I would, uh, where I would fall on that. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm probably agreeing with you, but I, I just want to say, if it's a fool's game to try to incorporate into your thoughts about economic performance the intangible things that are hard to measure and are very subjective, then it's even more of a fool's game to base policy on 
measures of economic performance that totally ignore that. Yeah, yeah. that's an a fortiori argument there. I think, yeah. I, I think that's correct. I, I, I guess part of my underlying agreement with you on these issues is that economists like being important. And part of our importance is the implication that we can that, – that we often push that we can save the world with the right – give me the right levers and I can save the world. And one way to take your critique is to say um, we don't know what the levers are connected to. We hardly know whether the world needs saving, and we should try to figure it out in the meanwhile, at least make some effort to do that. Yeah, this, my shorthand phrase is stare at the world, not at your models. I mean, economists are, have great pride in deriving powerful insights from simple models. And maybe up to a point that's helpful, but I think we've, we're at a point where the evolution of the economy has been so great, the importance of intangible factors is now so high that this staring at the models approach has uh, been, at best, sort of not producing much an insight, and at worst, is kind of telling us the wrong, giving giving us the wrong ideas about how the economy is working and about policy. I want to close with a uh, something I've been thinking about recently. I think it came up in the Pluck Rose and Lindsay episode of a few weeks ago, and. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately, I don't know if it's on your mind, but it's it's a lot on mine, which is tribalism. Our need, desire, tendency to identify with uh, a larger group, whether it's our political party, our sports team, our religion, our lack of religion, our academic training. Our, it seems to be an important part of human nature that is uh, ignored by economics that we would, I think, often sneeringly say, oh, that's just anthropology. That's some weird thing about uh, – but it's increasingly impinging on, seems to me, on economic life. And to some extent, the discussion we had earlier about Google's culture and its willingness to fire an employee for its political views, uh, for that person's political views, seems to be uh, related to this idea that to some extent a corporate culture succeeds by making – uh, your employment part of your tribal identity, that you're on the same team at work. And um, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, it's just something that's it's not in – I don't think it's in Adam Smith much, and it's certainly <laughs> not in um, graduate economic uh, training right now or undergraduate economic training, this desire to, to be part of something uh, uh, tribe. Oh dear, you've opened up too big a question to sort of be a closing note. That was that wasn't fair. Um, I'd say you know I, I worked in business uh, rather than going into academics, um, and um, you know, I was disappointed actually at that outcome at the time. Now I'm, I'm actually grateful for it. And you just see that tribalism. Okay, so I worked at Freddie Mac before it became famous, is the way I describe it. Late eighties, early nineties, and First of all, you know, we hated Fannie Mae. You know, <laughs> those guys, they, 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 you know, they're, they're just, you know, running a big portfolio. They, you know, they don't have the wrong business model. And then internally, you know, it was financial research hated multifamily. I mean, you know, so, yeah, there's, tri there's plenty of tribalism there. And, and 
an awful lot of effort, just a tremendous amount of effort of senior management goes into, you know, overcoming that tribalism, making sure it's instead of financial research against multifamily, it's financial research and multifamily at Freddie Mac against Fannie Mae. I mean, you know, just the amount of effort that goes into that. So I don't know, you know, to what extent economics can relate to that, but boy, in the real world, it sure is important. My guest today has been Arnold Klang. Arnold, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Enjoyed it a lot. I, Me too. With your, with your, the more pushback you got, you gave, the better it was, and I'm sure you were uh, pushing back in some ways against ideas that you actually believe. Sometimes. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>